What happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of their lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Uh, we're excited about having next weekend Pastor Jim Lafuni. Many of you know Pastor Jim from his years of ministry in this church. If you're unfamiliar with who Jim is, he has a strong teaching, counseling, and also a prophetic gift. That means he's practiced hearing the voice of God. He loves to pray for people and see their hearts and lives encouraged. We'll be having a special night of worship and ministry with Jim next Saturday at 6 p.m. Love to have you here. This is an um, incredibly encouraging Environment, so you don't want to miss it, Tom. It's going to be this again this Saturday. Then, of course, he'll be here both services on Sunday morning. So it's going to be a great weekend. All right, we here are are still on the front end of this series called Face to Face. We're looking at what happened when people encountered Jesus, and we're in John chapter two this morning. So again, if you're sort of tracking along, you'll notice we're sort of bouncing around these first few chapters of the Gospel of John, and here we are uh, in the entirety of chapter two this morning. Let's begin here, and our scripture reading starts in verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Wise words for us all. All right. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew... Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise again in three days. 
They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. That's God's word this morning. Years ago, I led a conversation group of sorts at the University of Texas campus, and it was there that I really began investigating other faiths and other faith systems at a deep level. In this little group, we had an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Buddhist, and a Christian. All right? And to keep the conversation going well, as well as not just to sound utterly ignorant in my attempts at leading it, I had to do some serious investigation, again, out of respect for them. Most of these other faith systems have fascinating origin stories, and one has a particularly lovely origin story, and that's the origin story of Buddhism. If you've never heard of it or you're not familiar with Buddhism's origin story, it's about a young man named Gautama. Gautama was a young prince in India whose father had given him a kind of a sheltered life, and he decided to sort of go away from that. He decided to take four trips outside his father's palace where he saw what are called the four distressing sights. The first night he was out, he saw sickness, then he saw age, then death, and extremism. Then he sat down under a tree to figure out the mystery of life. And when he figured it out, I think it's like 49 days later, he stood up and announced to his disciples the four noble truths. Now, that's a lovely story, but there's a crucial difference, and you may have caught it, between Buddhism and Christianity that utterly separates him for all time. All the historical events in Buddhism and surrounding its founding show is a way someone has learned of salvation. But in Christianity, the events surrounding Jesus' life are the way of salvation. In other words, at its essence, Buddhism and other faith systems tell you, you just need a teacher. Need a teacher. But Christianity says, no, first, you need a savior. You need to be saved and rescued from yourself. And it's not through more teaching, although teaching can be helpful. It's through a person, and his name is Jesus. And perhaps there's no better place in the Gospels to grasp the full picture of who this saving person of Jesus is than here in John chapter 2. There are two stories, there are two incidents we read that take place consecutively. And though they look different on the surface... They're really the same underneath. The two halves of chapter 2, they may seem disconnected, but they are only as disconnected as heads and tails are on a coin. They are, in other words, two sides of the same thing. And that same thing is this, how Jesus Christ utterly changes our lives when we encounter him. How does he change us? John 2 says primarily in three ways. First, through banquet wine, then through a zealous whip, And finally, through a cleansing word, wine, whip, and a word this morning. First, let's look at banquet wine. And again, in verse 1, there's a wedding that's taking place. Third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, what? They have no more wine. Now, you may know that to run out of wine was an enormous social faux pas in those days, a betrayal actually of community values. He would come to celebrate itself as much as the two people getting married. In those days, the, the wedding wasn't just about the individuals, just saying, hey, the wedding is just all about you, would never have been heard. No, it was about the community. And running out of wine meant that the week-long party was over and the family would be disgraced. And therefore, it's no wonder That out of all the things the scripture records that Mary, the mother of God, coming and telling Jesus to do, she instructs him to do this. She doesn't instruct him to, hey, Jesus, you know, 
pick up your room. You know, get up a little earlier. Get a job. Make your bed or something like that. Watch your tone, son. No. Anything we could have found the mother of God saying, she says this, save the party, Jesus. Right? She says, you've got to keep the party going. Now, it sounds amusing to us today, but she was deadly serious in her day. This whole scene would be like having the president of the United States into your home for a week and then your mother or your spouse coming to you and saying, hey, the air conditioning has broken and the toilet's overflowing. You've got to do something about it. See, it was embarrassing. It would have meant the party's over. But we read that in the end, though, Jesus does it. He uses his power to perform a miracle. He miraculously turns the water into wine and the party is saved but why? But why? Why does he do it? Well, this, we're told, is the very first miracle that Jesus has performed. He has waited, think about it, waited all of history to come to planet Earth, and then 30 years as a human being. And this, out of everything he could have done, he does this. There's nobody sick to heal here, right? There's no family on the brink, no dead to raise, no demon to cast out or leper to cleanse. No, just a couple of dumb, love-struck teenagers who need the egg wiped off their face. Why does he do it? Verse 11 tells us, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the what? What's the word? Signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, the gospel writer John is telling us here, this isn't just a miracle, although it's that. This is a sign. It's pointing to something larger, deeper, more compelling. What is it? Well, look at the very first person Jesus turns to after he performs his first miracle. Where does he involve himself? Huh? He turns the water into wine and gives instructions to who? The headmaster, the banquet master, the master of the feast, the master of ceremonies, the one in charge of keeping the party going. And he says, taste my wine. In effect, he's saying, can yours compete with this? Can you compete with this? Can you see what he's doing? He's saying, I I, Jesus, I am the true master of ceremonies. I am the true feast master. I'm the one who can bring joy to any life and any occasion. You may be saying what I thought Jesus came to suffer, right? To die, to humble himself. Yes, that's true. But can you see today what he's saying first? What he's saying first? He's saying all my suffering, all that I'm going to endure will be for this, to make the world run with wine and joy. And that's what actually Isaiah 25 in the Old Testament says will happen when it speaks about the Messiah and what he will bring. Isaiah wrote this centuries before Christ came. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And you ought to say amen. Can you see here? Jesus is giving us a foretaste of glory divine, as the old hymn says, of his coming glory right here at this party. He wiped away, look at that, the disgrace of the wedding party. He prepared a banquet of what? The best wine. Why? Simply to bring joy to the bride and the bridegroom. He's saying here, my calling card, my business card, the top of my resume is this. I am the joy bringer. 
I am the wine maker. Man, forget those two dudes in that movie. I am the ultimate wedding crasher. Sorry. I have come to set the world to laughter, the world to joy. He's saying, you know all those old legends? The ones where, you know, the forests drip with wine, the fields are glad and sing. That's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. Then you say, well, going to do? Hasn't he just done something here? Yes, he has done something. He did turn the water into wine. But there's also an enormous hint Jesus drops at what he will do. See, after his mother goes to him and asks him, says, son, save the party, do something about the wine, Jesus replies kind of cryptically, says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Well, there it is again, right? We looked at it last week. This word hour here is a technical term in the Gospel of John referring to his death. But this is weird, right? He's at a wedding. His mother says, do something about the wine. And in effect, he says, wine, back off. It's not my time to die. It's kind of, yeah, you're stunned in the silence. What's going on? What's going on is this. Jesus is sitting there, but his mind is somewhere else. He's seeing past the whole wedding feast, thinking, yes, this is what one day I'm going to do for the whole world. One day I'm going to bring joy to every heart. But, oh, mother, oh, mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. See, And one day he would. Jesus, the great bridegroom, would lose his life and lose his joy so that his bride, us, the church, could receive life and joy into us. He would drink, not a cup of wine, but a cup of wrath full of the curses and punishment we deserve so we can raise the cup of blessing and joy in our life today. And John, the writer, says, see, this is a sign, a sign. See what it means. Jesus has come to bring wedding festival joy into our hearts. How? Not by teaching, by saving, by saving and changing. Now think about this. If Jesus would do this, if he would use his power to meet the simple need and spare a couple from a couple of teens from social embarrassment, how much more do you think he'll use his power to meet your needs today? Do you see? He cares about your smallest emotion, your smallest circumstance, and your need today. Don't be afraid to ask him, church. He's come to bring his future joy, the wedding feast of the Lamb, that kind of joy, into our lives today. You can say amen. Now, we like this Jesus right here, don't we? He's pretty great. He's pretty great. And this is true. He wants to come to fill our table. But as we're about to see, he's also come to turn our tables over. Sometimes he doesn't just come into our lives with banquet wine, but with, number two, a zealous whip. Praise the Lord. The gospel writer John here, he's a master storyteller. And so immediately after this first miracle, this first sign, John shows another side of Jesus by showing him going to the temple in Jerusalem. And John is wanting us to connect, excuse me, catch the connection between these two scenes. And he uses two words to do it. John says, after this. In other words, after the wine, after the wedding, after the joy comes this. He's saying, what I want you to see about Jesus is this, okay? And what is next? What's the after this? Right here, verse 14, it says, in the temple courts. Here's what's next. He found people 
selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. All right, what's happening? Well, John says that Jesus was in the temple courts during the time or near the time of the Passover. Why is that important? Well, when you stepped inside the temple door, you would be in what was called the court of the Gentiles, the only area where non-Jews were allowed. It was the biggest section of the temple, and you had to go through it to get to the rest. And all the business operations were set up there. If you could sort of picture, again, this would be like, you know, the inner court here, this, our, our, our physical building of this local church would be that maybe our parking lot would be the outer court so to speak and business operations set up out there thousands of people coming into jerusalem to celebrate the passover where thousands of animals would have been sacrificed the jewish historian josephus actually tells us one passover week one year two hundred and fifty-five thousand lambs were bought sold and sacrificed in those temple courts think wall street with livestock i'm beginning to get the picture then you think this was the place where everyone who wasn't Jewish was supposed to be able to encounter and worship God. See, over time, there was a system that had been created that had come to be set up that actually prevented people from hearing and worshiping and encountering God. And so what does the Son of God do? Oh, he becomes enraged. He makes a whip and he cleanses the temple, clears out the parking lot, so to speak, forces out every obstacle that would keep people from encountering God. And by the way, don't want to burst your bubble here, but this isn't a whip as you and I would think about it. It says he made a whip of cords, and the Greek word for cords is rushes, as in the leaves of a large plant. In other words, don't picture Indiana Jones with a bullwhip here. Jesus is gathered. He's grabbed a handful of plant leaves, tied them together, and then driven them out. You say, well, if that wasn't the whip Jesus drove them out with, what drove them out? Well, it was what the people actually saw in Jesus, and his disciples tell us. They use an Old Testament verse later to describe it. It said this, zeal for your house will consume me. See, it was Jesus' zeal, his passion, his person. What was in his eyes that drove them out? Why? Because he couldn't stand the sight of something, someone keeping people from encountering God and experiencing the wedding joy. And did you notice, Jesus doesn't ask permission to do this. He doesn't ask for anyone's approval. He just doesn't, I mean, can you see the contrast at the wedding? He's an invited guest. In the temple, he's unlooked for. At the wedding, he's asked to make wine. Here, he's not asked to do anything at all. At the wedding, he makes everyone happy. Here in the temple, he enrages everyone. And isn't this, therefore, the case with the human heart? We love the God who comes to fill us with joy and to fill our table when we ask him to. But we don't like the God who comes unasked for to confront us and overturn our tables. We love the Lord of the wine. We don't want the Lord of the whip. But can you see? It's the same God who does both in our lives. And Jesus here has come to do surgery on the very place where God meets with man, the temple. And he doesn't ask anyone's permission to do it. And he doesn't need or have to ask your permission to come into your life to do a kind of surgery on you 
to remove anything keeping you from experiencing his wedding joy. Why? Well, because the place God resides today isn't in a building or a temple. It's the human heart. And so today, Jesus still comes to overturn our tables and to do the surgery of life on us. You may say, Morgan, I don't like that metaphor. I like the party guy better. My point exactly. And John knows you do too, which is why he strings these scenes together of Jesus as the feast master and Jesus the temple surgeon. Look, if and when a surgeon ever operates on you, why does he do it? Is it to harm you or is it to heal you? No, it's always to heal you. And so it is with Jesus of the temple. He does the surgery of life on his beloved children to overturn in their lives anything keeping them from experiencing his heart, the joy of the wedding feast. He overturns tables in all kinds of areas. We're going to look at two primarily today through the lens of the two main kinds and groups of people that Jesus encounters here. He overturns tables specifically in two ways. First, there's tables of selfishness. Let's ask, what had these money changers done? They're the first people he encounters here. Well, they were fitting their worship of God into a convenient financial paradigm, right? Their quest to make money prevented them and those around them from encountering God. Maybe saying, ah, this is talking about churches, right? Churches and money. I mean, don't churches do this? Well, it's true. Many churches have. And once upon a time, many years ago, That was this church's story. And Jesus came through and he cleansed us and drove people out because that was how this church was handling people's money. It kept them from encountering God. But if you take this text and say, aha, Jesus is condemning churches who take up offerings, receive offerings. No, read the rest of the New Testament, friends. Read the rest of the Gospels. And if you're thinking that, put it like this, it's always easier to scapegoat the church or someone else for your lack of generosity. See, greed, Jesus says later, comes in all kinds of forms. Greed comes in the form of churches and church leaders that mishandle money, and greed comes in the form of people who use what other folks have done as a means of justifying why they don't give. See, greed's sneaky. It's sneaky. But these people here, though, who are they? They're not religious leaders, are they? They're not church leaders, no. They're business people whose business pursuits kept them too busy to really worship God and serve others. And the same can be true of us. Listen, if we're too busy working, too busy to be involved with what God's doing, if your life and your family are prevented from encountering God and engaging in what God's doing, you need to ask, who am I really doing this for? Who am I really living for? Who am I really worshiping? God, is it you? Or is it my career? See, listen, if all our money, if your money goes to your house payment and car payments and credit card payments and your kids' school payments and your 401k investment payments, but there's little to none that goes outside of funding your own little kingdom and goes instead into funding God's great kingdom, whose money are you telling God you think it is? It really is all along. You're just telling him you think it's yours. See, Jesus will come in and overturn the tables of your life and priorities. Why? The same reason he turned the water into wine. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Listen, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
And it's more blessed to be involved in community and serve others than it is to be served yourself. And you desperately need to know that. And sometimes, therefore, Jesus has got to come into your life, come into your heart, wave around a whip. Maybe he looks like John Lloyd. Maybe it looks like Galen Washington, your community group leader, pastor, elder, friend, who comes in waving a little whip and says, hey, what are these tables doing here? Why are they set up? Maybe you need to overturn them. Because let's ask, what if? What if getting what you really wanted in life could be the worst thing that ever happened to you? Hmm? What if your failure, temporary failure, was really God's love for you today? And here's my prayer. As an elder here, as a father here, as a lead pastor here, I pray, hear me, I pray that you, as a business person, if that's you, that your business would absolutely fail, crash, and burn. But as a result, that you in the end would come to find love, serve, and obey Jesus, rather than than having you succeed wildly and missing the grace of God. In the same way, hear me, am I done? In the same way, I pray our church would fail and close its doors if we ever become a mere business and forget the point of what we're doing here. What does it profit a man? What does it profit a church to gain the world and lose their soul? See, who we become, who you become, is more important than what you do. And Jesus will, without your permission, he'll come over, flip over some tables to remind you, hear this, whose temple it is in the first place. Now, that's not the only kind of table Jesus will overturn without your permission. Next, he turns over, secondly, tables of skepticism. Now, if you're a skeptic in here, non-Christian, you've been thinking, man, yeah, Morgan, get those church people well. We're going to turn the tables on you, pun intended there. All right, then the, I'll be nice. The Jews then responded to him. They said this, what sign can you show us to prove your what? authority to do all this. What are they asking for? Proof of who Jesus was, but why? Why do they want proof? Here's why. They didn't like his claim to authority over them. And the same goes for all of us, especially many skeptics today. Because what was the one thing these Jews didn't like? They didn't like his claim to authority. It wasn't their intellect that was offended. It was their pride. And let me just show you how it works. Give me two minutes. When Jesus came, who were his constant conflicts with? Not the weak, not the poor, not the sick, not the outcast. It was always with the educated, with the rich, the middle and upper classes, those in power. Why? Because the rich, the educated, upper middle classes, they're not used to having their tables turned over in life, but the poor are. Oh, they get their tables turned over in life every day, don't they? They're not on top. They don't pretend to be in charge or have it all together. And Jesus acknowledges this earlier in his life when his cousin John the Baptist had his own tables overturned in life because he was sent to prison. And when John the Baptist was sent to prison, he began to doubt Jesus because of his circumstances. He becomes skeptical himself. And John the Baptist's disciples go to Jesus and say, what proof? Prove you're the son of God. What proof can you give us you are who you are? And what does Jesus say? He says this. Here's the proof. I'm God's son. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers cleansed. And the poor receive the good news. The poor receive the good news. He says, here's the proof. Lepers cleansed, deaf ear, the poor believe, the poor believe. Notice what he doesn't say will ever be proof he's the son of God. The rich receive me. The educated will receive me. Jesus never says that. He never says, oh, celebrities are going to love me. Rock stars, TV stars are going to embrace me by the boatload. 
No, the powerful are going to receive. No, Jesus never says the powerful are going to receive me. No, those who have their tables nice and neat and in a row, oh, in control of their lives, they always have a harder time receiving Jesus. The rich, the powerful, the educated have always said when it comes to Jesus, what's important about you, Jesus, is just your teaching. See, the authority part of you, mm-mm. supernatural part, mm-mm. See, the educated have always rejected Jesus. Do you realize that? Back in the state, it was the educated Jews. They said the reason you're believing in Jesus is because you have a lack of religious education. The Greeks said the only reason you believe in Jesus is because you have a lack of philosophical education. And today, people say the only reason folks believe in Jesus is because they have a lack of scientific education. The same reason has been there all along. It's only the adjective that's changed. And it's the same idea. Why? Because Jesus comes into every school of thought, comes into education, science, says, I love you. Man, I made you. You're great. Man, awesome. Go for it. Be scientific. Be educated. But by the way, you don't run the universe. I do. I do. I do. And if, listen, if that offends you, may I just suggest, because I will, it's not as much your intellect, it's your pride, because it's his claim to authority. And so the Jews ask him, what sign can you give us? What airtight proof can you give us? You are who you claim to be. What watertight argument can you give us? Why? What gives you authority to cleanse the temple? And what does Jesus give them? Not banquet wine, not even zealous whip. He gives them, finally, number three, a cleansing word. A cleansing word. He says this in response to their question for proof. It's almost out of the blue. He says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. So what sign, what proof does he give of his authority? He points to his death again. Why? Because in the same way, he looked out at a wedding, and he said, I know what it's going to take to bring these people joy. It's going to take me dying, me drinking the cup of judgment. Now he's looking out of the temple, and all the sacrifices being made to cleanse people from their sins, and now he's thinking, I know what it's going to take to cleanse, not just the temple courts. I know what it's going to take to cleanse the human hearts. Uh, The human heart. For the human heart to be cleansed, for a person to be truly right and clean before God. Jesus is saying, I'm going to have to become unclean. I'm going to have to become unclean. So what does this mean? It means this. The Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard once taught on the book of Zechariah, and Zechariah is one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament that prophesied about Christ's coming. And in the first line of this book, Zechariah chapter 3, it says that Zechariah, in a vision, he's having a vision one day, he's taken in his vision to the center of the same temple that Jesus stood in centuries later. And Zechariah said, this is what was happening in his vision. He said, then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, The temple had three parts, with the center being the place, you heard Philip reference it earlier, called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was surrounded by a thick veil, a curtain, behind which was the Ark of the Covenant, over which God's presence would come. And only one person was allowed one time, one day a year, during the week of Passover, to go in. This day was called the Day of Atonement, what the Jews called Yom Kippur. So Zechariah, therefore he's experiencing, can you see, this vision from inside the Holy of Holies, and he sees the high priest of his day, the only one that's allowed to go in, standing before God on the Day of Atonement. And here is what would have to happen for Joshua, the high priest, to go in on that one day of the year. 
a week before that critical day, the high priest was put in a seclusion. He was put into his home completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't touch or encounter anyone unclean. Secondly, clean food was brought to him. He'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he would stay up all night praying and reading the Torah to purify his soul. Then, on the Day of Atonement, he would bathe from head to toe and dress in pure, unstained white linen. Then, he would go into the Holy of Holies and offer an animal sacrifice to God to atone for his own sins. Then he would come out and bathe again. New white linen would be put on him. Then he would go back in, sacrificing this time for the sins of the other priests. Then he would come out, bathe again put on a new set of white linen and go back in this time to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people now here's something that you may not know all of this was done in public the temple would be crowded but there was a thin screen behind which he would bathe and change but the people were there they watched him go back and forth in and out three times why he was their representative before god they were there to cheer him on and ensure he was pure as only purity can be now only in that light is zachariah's vision so shocking here's what he saw he said now joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Oh, here's Joshua, the high priest of God, in the Holy of Holies, literally covered in excrement. That's what the word means. Absolutely defiled. Zechariah couldn't believe what he was seeing. What was God showing him? Oh, he's showing Zechariah and all of us what we look like to him, what our very best efforts to purify ourselves, cleanse ourselves, come to. He was showing Zechariah, Zechariah, you don't need just more philosophy more teaching, more enlightenment. No, you need a savior. You need a savior. But just as Zechariah was about to despair, he heard God say, take off his filthy clothes. Then God said to Joshua, the high priest, he said, see, I've now taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Listen, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Oh, there's no way Zechariah could believe what he was hearing. You mean to say, God, we've been sacrificing for years and desperately trying to make ourselves clean, and this is what we look like. But God was saying, listen, this, this is a vision of what will happen one day. And it did. How? Like this. Centuries later, another Joshua showed up. You see, Jesus and Joshua, the same name in Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. The name is Yeshua. And another Joshua came, had his final day of atonement. One week beforehand, this high priest, Jesus, began his preparation. And the night before, he didn't sleep. He stayed up all night, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing his heart for the next day. But this time, the crowd didn't cheer him, did they? No, they mocked him. Instead of words of encouragement from his friends, they abandoned him. And his own father forsook him. Instead of being clothed in fine linen, he was stripped of his clothing. Instead of being bathed in water, he was bathed in human spit. Why? Because God was making him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness, the approved ones of God. Jesus was clothed in our sin. Like Joshua was there, he took our penalty. So that now, not just our bodies, but our hearts can be clean before him. See, he, the temple of God, the final meeting place of God and man, he was destroyed. But three days later, he didn't stay in the ground, did he? No, he was raised to life again. 
proving his love, proving his authority for you. This, friends, church, this is the kind of king you can trust. He is both the winemaker and the temple surgeon at once. He may come with a whip in your life, but it's only so that his wine may flow in your life. He's come always, always in the end to bring you joy. Do you believe that today? Let's, let's close as we pray. We're going to rejoice now and let that, I hope, trust the wine, the joy, the flow of the Holy Spirit to come now in us as we reflect on his great love for us. Father, we come now closing in Jesus' name. Lord, asking in these moments, Lord, all of us need this. Lord, whether we're, we're at a wedding or we're in the temple, Lord, we need your surgery to be done on us. Lord, would you overcome even and overturn our tables? That your wedding festival joy would flow in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name.